This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Aurora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name is Peter Frey and I am the co-director of the Centre for Media Transition at the University of Technology, Sydney, and my producer today is Anthony Dockrell. Today, as always, we're talking journalism and its role in society, but this week on Fourth Estate, we're looking back in time. We're looking back in time, perhaps to make sense of the current situation we're in, and perhaps to point to the future. Our guest this week has produced a book about that glorious, lucrative, and somewhat corrupted past, where the technology of the day, known as the printing press, rested in in the hands of a few powerful men. So it gives me great pleasure to welcome to the show Sally Young. Hello, Sally. Hello, Peter. Uh, Sally uh, is a professor of political science, a columnist, uh, the author of several books about journalism and influence and politics, including the book we're going to talk about today called Paper Emperors, The Rise of Australia, Australia's Newspaper Empires. So you're in uh, Canberra today, Sally. How is it? A bit cold, <laughs> but the sun's out. Can't complain. Oh, that's right. And you're and you're performing at the Writers Festival, the Canberra Writers Festival this uh, this weekend, right? Correct. Yep. And you're looking forward to that. Absolutely. Yeah, that's going to be a great event at Old Parliament House. Yeah, and, yeah. and I think I'll be seeing you there, so that's uh, all good. So, as I mentioned, you're a professor of political science at University of Melbourne, uh, where for many years now you've been exploring the influence of the press and the changing roles in journalism. Tell me, are you a frustrated journalist? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I, th- I think I share a lot of um, the sort of working habits and the desires that journalists have to find out information and write about it. But uh, I like long form. You can see, anyone who sees my book will see how thick and self-indulgent that is. I don't <laughs> think I could be constrained in the way journalists are by word limits. I like... Well, I, I, yeah, you, it is a very... It's yeah. a long and, and wonderful book, but it's got a lot of detail in it. So congratulations on Paper Empress. It's a terrific read. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I nearly drowned in the detail. I hope I haven't imposed too much on readers with the detail, but I thought that was important to get to the the you know cusp of what was going on, really. So, yeah, there is a lot of detail in the book, and it covers a long period of time as well. Oh, it does. We'll get to that. Yes, I mean, mm-hmm. I do think your book should carry a warning for people like me, which is essentially uncomfortable reading lies herein. Because you, you start off by noting that the newspapers and the news media um, are particularly not good, especially not good at self-examination. Mm. And then you leave it, the reader in no doubt why that's the case. I mean, mm. the newspaper game you describe is a can of well, contradictions, collusions and secrets, right? Mm, correct, yeah. And I do feel for the, the journalists stuck in the middle of it. And, and this book's really, I, I was trying to put the spotlight on the owners and mm. the sort of, ways they've created newspapers and the cultures of 
you know, those organisations and the people who work for them. Um, journalists are obviously in the middle of that and uh, they often get the finger pointed at them about why is journalism so bad and, you know, I wanted to look above that level and say, well, you know, who's um, setting the tone for journalism and look at the owners. So, yeah, I do know that um, it is probably uncomfortable reading for journalists. I can imagine that it surely is, but mm. I feel for their position and it always struck me when I was doing the research and I was looking at old journalist papers in the, in the National Library, for example, people who left their papers to the library on purpose. And I sensed their frustration at being in that system and sort of wanted to, on their behalf as well, say you know, what the conditions were like working in some of those mm. organisations. Yeah, because the people you write about, these powerful men, and they all tend to be men, mm. uh, the people you write about are not particularly nice, um, nor are they really motivated by sort of lo- lofty ideas of the fourth estate. In fact, mm-hmm. the idea of journalism as a disinterested, independent observer is kind of the first casualty of this book. Mm. Were you surprised by what you found in that? Or um, yeah, I was, I was surprised by a lot of things right in the book. Um, you know, I'd always suspected that um, owners, you know, had interests, that, you know, they weren't just owning newspapers for the sake of you know, being good citizens. Um I suspected that they were using them for their commercial interests, and that really came through. I mean, a lot of these were sort of big industry figures across a lot of industries um, mm. and behind the scenes as well. So they had commercial interests to promote. You know, that didn't um, surprise me, although it, it, you know, the extent to which that was going on, I suppose, is a bit um, concerning. Um, but also the political interests that they had. And I mean, it surprised me, I suppose, to find out that a lot of the early newspaper owners were politicians. So that was, yeah. it never made sense that you'd say, then, you know, newspapers are separate from politics. The people who owned them were politicians. They were running for office. Yeah, they were um, never... That's right. newspapers for that purpose. They yeah. were never disinterested observers at all, really. Mm, exactly, exactly. And that, that's what, um, you know, I always, as you say, uncomfortable reading for journalists, and I always feel uncomfortable that everyone shines the, the spotlight on journalists, that this is their problem. But, you know, these were the organisations that were created, and it wasn't as if the owners were saying, right, I've got shares in BHP, I want you to go push BHP. Mm. You know, it doesn't work like that. It's it's not about that. Or they say, oh, I'm a politician running for this party, you better do that. Although sometimes, and some of them do, some of them, the owners were pretty direct and some were more sophisticated. So, you know, Frank Packer was pretty direct. Um, Keith Murdoch was more sophisticated and had more respect for his journalist intelligence. But, mm. uh, you know, these were, there are pressure in these organisations. And I'm finding that it's, this is not just a matter of in the past. I'm talking to current journalists at the moment and former editors and um, you know people from more recent times, and it's still a concern, and they're still very concerned about talking about it. So it's uh, it's sort of an an issue I think journalists know in their hearts and in their heads, but aren't always able to voice in their papers. Yeah, it's a bit of a dirty secret, is what you've got. Right? Mm, exactly, mean... and that's why those archival papers are fascinating because some of these former journalists, people who worked with Keith Murdoch, for example. They were obviously saying yes, yes, Sir Keith, yes, and you know, doing what they needed to do. Mm. But then they put, they keep all these correspondence, and they write notes on it, and they write things, and they put them in their papers, and they hand it on to the National Library. So they want people to know what's going on. They just couldn't say it in their own papers because mm, they would be out of a job, basically. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So just to, just for the listeners, uh, the book takes takes us on a journey of these newspaper owners and their influence and power from the beginnings of European settlement to 1941. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I say, there's a lot of great and illuminative history, lots of nitty-gritty detail about the people long buried and but mu- uh, and long dead and buried. But as you're just saying, much of what you write about resonate resonates now, right? I mean, it it feels though it's you know a long time ago. The these 
these spheres of influence you describe mm-hmm. um, are, you know, a slightly different form, but much the same now, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, yeah, and that's what's surprising to me, even um, maybe I'm still a bit nice, but I, you know, there are journalists and, and editors, especially former ones who are no longer working, who I think, okay, you're long out of the game now. Surely you're happy to be quoted about things and, you know, talk on the record. And yet, um, you know, some of these people have reputations for being very tough, but they don't want to be quoted on the record for the next book about things they've experienced in, say, the 60s or 70s or 80s. Mm. And you just think, oh, okay, this still has a power. Yes, absolutely. Well, in part because many of the names you write about still resonate, right? So you mentioned Keith Murdoch, so that's Rupert's dad. Um, there's a bevy of Fairfaxes, and, you know, they're still around, sort of. And, and then there's um, R.C. Packer and his son, mm-hmm. Frank, who's the granddad of Kerry, and, of course, the great-granddad of James. I mean, the list goes on. Mm. Was that your purpose? Did you sort of seek to kind of, in a sense, grab this t- point in time in history uh, to use it to sort of show how these things continue? Yeah, um, uh, yes. Yes, absolutely. And, uh, you know, these are dynasties and, and there's no accident to that. Uh, you know, there's something that's being handed down here. It's knowledge um, and it's knowledge about using power and newspapers are power. They used to be power and money. They're not so much money anymore, not the money makers they were, but they've been used for power and, that, and that's what I'm sort of trying to bring to the fore. And some of these characters, behind the scenes who have been calling the shots. You know, they've, they've been doing this for a long time. You know, some of these dynasties go back like the Fairfaxes. You know, we're, we're talking about the you know, mid-1800s or mm, earlier. Mm. This is a long, um, you know, it, it came to a abrupt end, and the next book will talk about that in the 80s in terms of the Fairfax's control over its own organisation. But these have built up over many generations, and, uh, you know, in these cases that we're talking about in Australia, some of these families really have power for a long time. And, uh, you know, they're, they're tough characters. I mean, the Packers are quite frightening, I think, when you read about them. They're the ones that sort of I look at and I just think, you know, especially getting towards the more recent era, um, you know, some of the things they've been said to be involved with or some of the things that are written in papers, private papers about them are quite frightening, really. Um, and, you know, some of the others as well. As I say, Keith Murdoch, I got to, feel like I got to know him very well. There's an excellent um, biography of him as well that you know, I just found amazing information about him and how he worked. But, um, you know, he was a journalist, at least. He understood it. He seemed to have a love and value for journalism, whereas some of the owners just seem to see it as a as an absolute tool mm. um, and don't have as much respect for their journalists as he did. Yeah, I mean, I think, as you, as, as you say in the book, you kind of, not everyone is equally sort of bad, as it were, mm. but they all seem are very aware of power of their power even I mean so I worked for the Fairfaxes for a long time and and know some members of the family I mean the narrative of the Fairfaxes is that they were kind of benign power but mm. that's not necessarily the case oh well they, they saw themselves very much as um, you know the good guys I suppose of the newspaper world and newspaper royalty and uh, you know they had a higher moral purpose a religious purpose even some of them and this real they did you know have a strong sense of public interest, I think, more so than some of the others. And yet, you know, they have um, extensive interests in various industries. They have um, an awareness, as you say, of their power and what they can do with that as well, mm. some of them more than others. But, um, you know, this is, this is not a business for softies. I certainly gained that impression. I felt like this is a very hard industry, um, you know, among the players, and that they knew that themselves. Um, Keith Murdoch especially would find coming to Sydney exhausting and dealing with Sydney newspaper owners um, very 
difficult because they were a tough bunch and the Sydney world in particular seems to have been a sort of ruthless outlaw kind of environment for the newspaper industry. Of course it still is, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, the Melbourne ones consider themselves a bit more genteel and above it, but they they were pretty tough and the power in the period that I'm looking at was very much associated with the Bayou family and mining money. uh, Yes, absolutely. There's a lot of mining money behind newspapers. That's what else um, sort of surprised me, the extent of that. Mm. that was going on. Well, I guess it goes to the, I mean, it does literally go to the question around the power of the press and that they could influence public debate. Yep. And, and did so on a regular basis. Yep, absolutely. And, uh, and yeah, that, that's really what I'm trying to get a hold of here. I started with, you know, the intention was really talking about media policy because obviously, you know, when you're looking at um, reporting on governments and how they're making policy, whenever it affects your interests, that's going to be uh, a conflict of interest. And that's what I started looking at. But then I realised it's much broader than that. It's, um, you know, a lot. their interests are so broad, some of these owners. I mean, the Collins House, like the Bayou family that wants behind the Herald and Weekly Times organisation, mm, mm. they are involved in so many industries. It's, you know, I've got a long list that goes through a paragraph. I mean, they're involved not just in mining, but, you know, radio, plastics, um, you know, felt, materials. I mean, it's just, it just keep going on and on. Aircraft, I mean, it's unbelievable the amount of things they were involved in. So it's, you know, that permeates through how you see issues and how you look at what governments are doing, and there's no doubt about that. Do you think um, the Australians, and this is, you know, the broad Australian, you know, but do you think Australians are somewhat naive about all this? I think they sense it a bit, and I think... Um, They've directed that at journalism and journalists, which is, as I said, that that was my concern, that they've caught the blame. But, you know, when you ask people in surveys, what do you think they often say? They don't trust the media. And newspapers in particular, they say they don't trust. And I, I guess that has to do with the fact that newspapers are more partisan than broadcasting, and there's regulatory reasons for that. But there's probably a sense where you see with your own eyes what's going on on television, for example. So as newspapers, it's words that are written and chosen. And I think they've got a, a gut about that. Um, newspapers have been more bluntly political than, say, television news, for example. But, yeah, I think that the distrust they feel about that is that they've directed that as journalists, they write the words or whatever, they pick the pictures. But it's a, it's above that. It, that's the level that they, people haven't really known about, including me, and that's why I wanted to write the book and find out what's going on at that next level above it, because I think that's where the real juicy stories are. Yeah, totally, um, totally. Uh, well, we're going to get to your next book because obviously you dropped a few hints, and I'm completely fascinated what you where you're going with that. But um, one of the things, and you mentioned this earlier, was that the linkage, the direct linkage between politicians and owning newspapers. So in the book, I think you say uh, from the late 19th to the early uh, 20th century, about mm-hmm. 12 very senior politicians, prime ministers and such like, many of them um, had been newspaper owners. So, I mean, that really does give the lie to the notion of independence too, right? The, didn't anyone at this point in time go, that doesn't seem right? Well, you didn't always know. I mean, it's not like, um, uh, you know, it's not like you open the page of a paper today, like say corporation paper and on the inside says this paper is owned by Rupert Murdoch. Um, it, it, you don't always know who owns the newspaper, especially in those days. Um, so you necessarily didn't have an understanding of that you're reading a paper that's owned by a company that owns other things or that this person's in charge of it. So you don't, I don't think ordinary readers have a good sense of that or ever did, and I think that's on purpose. Um, you know, And some of the connections were so strong. I mean, I, one of the things that surprised me was 
the Argus in um, Melbourne, you know, ran its own candidates secretly, put them up for the Senate. You know, and didn't tell anyone that these candidates that it's writing about, it's them putting these candidates up on purpose to try and have a say in industrial relations policy. So, I mean, you know, this, the sense of, you know, that there was some separation is just you know, quite shocking. It really wasn't. They were running their own candidates for office. Um, when Frank Packer had a, had a go at doing that as well. Um, Shouldn't, you know, shouldn't have, uh, yeah. Well, you'd think that the age uh, would have had a go at exposing the Argus, or was it kind of acquiescent about it? No, no, no. And I mean, this is the other thing that that surprised me that extent of, you know, sometimes knowledge is known but not discussed, and I'm sure journalists among themselves know a lot of things and don't discuss it, which is why I'll mm. take the opportunity to say, if anyone's out there listening and has some great documents or things they've been holding on to for years, please get in touch with me. But it surprises me the extent to which journalists haven't done that in some way. I mean, you know, I've heard about, for example, these mythical sort of notes that go around during election time within news corporations telling people basically, you know, this is the theme of the day, this is the angle of the day or whatever. And they're kind of instructive about how you should write about politics. But um, I remember some were leaked many years ago and put up online. But it's surprising that if that stuff exists, that it's not been more widely known or, um, you know, been reported. So there must be lots of documents and things out there and things people know that just haven't been said or haven't been written about. I mean, it's an interesting uh, dynamic, isn't it? I mean, in our current day, we still have this deep links between politicians and uh, journalists. I mean, not just in a professional sense. I mean, a lot of politicians were journalists. You know, Malcolm Turnbull was a journalist. Tony Abbott was a journalist. Uh, the current Deputy Prime Minister, uh, Michael McCormack, was the former editor of the Daily Advertiser in Wagga. So again, what is that? It's just—is it this notion that, uh, in a sense, they're both powerful occupations, mm. they attract yep. people who uh, strive to have power? Yeah, exactly. I think that that's a, a big part of it. And you know, again, what surprised me was that this wasn't just on one side of politics. You know, in the labour side of politics, there were many labour politicians who were, um, you know, either working for and often labour-oriented newspapers, working workers' papers. Um, but even shareholders in those sorts of companies, and those companies tend to be run like newspapers, commercial newspapers were. Um, so yeah, on both sides, there's, there's this strong connection between politics and newspapers and working for them. There's obviously things that you learn in that environment that are applicable across both, you know, mm. about shaping public opinion. Well, they're privileged occupations, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, yes, they are. And you know, there are certainly strong connections there about the sort of skills that you would use in both, I think, and being able to apply them in different ways, being able to write for an audience, being able to get to the nut of facts, being able to think what people are going to think about issues, tying threads together. Yeah, there's lots and lots of connections, I think. I mean, journalists um, kind of like to think of themselves as being on the side of the angels. Mm. Um, so these publishers, these powerful men, were any of them on the side of the angels? I think probably the Fairfax family would come closest in their, probably in their religious sense. You know, I think they had respect for their audience's intelligence. They were pretty snobby and pretentious about that sometimes, perhaps. But some of the others, especially some of the tabloid ones, you just know that there's this hypocrisy there where they'll tell you in public, you know, oh, you're being snobby because you don't like tabloid news content. But behind the scenes, the things they say about their readers are really patronising and insulting. And you know, they're writing content to G them up and, you know, press hot buttons and get them worked up. You know, they're pushing buttons on purpose and they know it. They're not really writing to, you know, bring forth issues that are of concern to their everyday lives of their readers. So 
there's always this hypocrisy as well, I think, that I'm sort of trying to puncture and mm-hmm. find out more about. But some of the language that is used about readers, and I quote in the book, it's, it's pretty damning. You know, they, they really are um, have insulting opinions of their readers. Mm. And yet the paradox here is that Australians... Uh, I've had a very long and deep association with newspapers, and in in mm. and and were avid readers of newspapers. I mean, in the mm. in the early part, as you say in the book, in the early part of the last century, in terms of circulation and readers per capita, Australians mm. were among the most avid newspaper readers in the world. Why yeah. was why was that? Were we starved of information? What made us such great newspaper consumers? Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating that because you know some of our papers, like the Sun News Pictorial, for example, you know, per capita they were enormously popular um, and Australians were high newspaper readers and I, maybe that's because we felt this sense of geographical isolation, big country, distant especially in the early European settlement period, we thought of home as somewhere else we wanted news from home you know, Europe, UK um, so that maybe that's part of it I mean, what's interesting to me is what, what's happening now because there's some new research out that suggests Australians we've really dropped in terms of say online newspaper subscriptions mm. we're mm. not among the top readers of newspapers online or subscribers um, you know that our sense of reading of news has, has really dropped and that's a real concern because that's a big shift from the past. Yes that's an interesting uh, subject I, I guess you're covering that in your new book but why do you think that is the, the, the translation from print to digital seems to we've seemed to have lost a lot of readers along the way. Yeah, yeah, definitely, and that that's a big part of um, unraveling what, what's gone on. And Australians have a reputation for being very good at taking up new technology, very quick to adopt new technology. Um, we've always had this reputation as well, being big news consumers. But maybe now that there are a lot more entertainment options out there, I'm thinking of things like Netflix and mm. streaming television, for example. Maybe our, you know our our preferences are devote how we devote our time really is mm. changing mm. a bit. Um, I guess that goes a little bit to what were we actually reading when we were reading newspapers. Yeah, exactly. Because when you look back, you know, a lot of that, you know, some of the things that were popular in newspaper, I mean, some was the apps, people were getting it for classifieds. And mm. that's hard for people who value journalism to accept that some people were just getting it because they needed the classifieds to mm. find a job. To find they were buying it for the ads. Yeah. 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 Right. The, the form guides, yep. the racing, I hear they were, you know, enormously popular and a big part of why people bought papers. There's all sorts of reasons. and. Yeah, you know, one of the things yeah. that I found interesting looking back in time was how much the owners always worried and the executives about the cost of the paper because you couldn't price it above a certain price or you just, people stopped reading it. So it never had a huge, there wasn't, a, you know, many people weren't willing to pay a lot for a newspaper. Mm. And now that we've gone to online, you can sort of see what's happened there. Um, you know, people still aren't necessarily willing to pay for a subscription. Mm. Well, that's entirely right. That's an interesting dynamic. It's probably another whole show we could do together. Mm. Um, but Australian newspapers did lead the way in many respects. I mean, you notice that you note that uh, the Melbourne Herald, for instance, was among the first newspapers in the English-speaking world to put the actual news on the front page. Mm-hmm. That was in 1889, some forty, what, forty to fifty years before most mm-hmm. others. Um, the Sydney Morning Herald didn't put news on the front page until 1949. I know because I was there. What was going on? What was going on then? Yeah, so I mean, yeah, we had we had some very innovative papers, and we had, um, as we still do, people going across to say the US, for example, and looking at what was going on there and bringing ideas back and forth. So, um, but yeah, I mean, the Herald was a pretty groundbreaking paper. The Sydney Sun was a groundbreaking paper, and these were the big papers of their day, and really led the way, not just in terms of content, but even organisation, because getting afternoon papers out 
you know, everything had to be on time and, you know, it was crucial. You had to sell it in the streets. It had to be very saleable um, as opposed to, say, morning subscription papers. But, yeah, some of those papers were very innovative and we had some incredible journalists and editors who were very um, imaginative. And if you had owners supporting that, then that worked really well. And some of the owners that I'm thinking of, like Hugh Dennison, who owned the Sydney Sun, he recognised he knew nothing about newspapers. He wasn't a journalist. He was like a tobacco heir and he was involved mm-hmm. in a lot of other things. But he knew he wasn't a journalist. He left the journalism to the journalists and let them come up with creative ideas. And people like Monty Grover did come up with very creative ideas and um, created papers that lasted a long time. Back um, then, there were a lot of newspapers, right? I mean, Sydney had five or six dailies and similar numbers in Melbourne and elsewhere. Do you think, when we talk about media diversity and, if you like, plurality, in the 1930s and 40s, Australians actually had more choice than they do now? Yeah, in terms of papers, definitely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it was already starting to consolidate after the twenties and after the depression. You know, quite a few newspapers went to the wall, and they got picked off by bigger companies like the Herald and Weekly Times. Scraped up a lot of some, you know, some of those independent ones. But yeah, they had more choice then um, in terms of papers that really constricted later on, and we got you know, very few owners, handful of owners, and. Mm. Well, well, of the of the five you look at, of the five mm. newspaper companies you look at in detail, really it's only News Limited that, that that has survived as News Corp. Now, one of the great stories in the book is the uh, a very story, a great intrigue, which is the um, the kind of true story of News Limited, how it got founded. Mm. Can you elaborate yeah. a little bit on that? Yeah, that was that was one of the ones that I thought was probably one of the most controversial parts of of the the book, really, because. Basically, I say that there was secret mining company money behind the creation of um, News Limited. Um, and I went through a lot of different documents to, to come up with this and trying to piece it together. But, you know, readers who get the book will understand I spent a lot of time explaining who, who are Coleman's House and what do they do because they're really behind a lot of what goes on, particularly in Victoria. But then through the Herald and Weekly Times, they start spreading out and end up owning, you know, a lot of papers in the Herald and Weekly Times becomes a huge media organisation in Australia, a very important one, and it's one that Rupert down the line um, takes over. But it was a crucial organisation, and behind it was Collins House, which was this big empire I was talking about before, this industrial complex that had its um, you know, businesses spread out throughout the country and even abroad. Um, it was a big player, and it was behind the start-up of News Limited, and so, that's what I say. Right. Yeah. Do you think so then News Limited has to rewrite its own history? I, I think they should. Um I've tried to start that task and say what I think happened, and I think I've got good solid evidence. Not everyone's going to agree with me, and some have disagreed, but I've put down there what I think was going on. So the story they've always promoted is that was started by this one man, uh, you know, on his own. You know, I go back and look up his records and see that his accountant is the same account as a column in Collins House. You know, the the money that he got, it doesn't make any sense that he could start up these papers with you know, a package. He was already connected with, um, you know, Collins House and, and the key people there. I draw all these lines of connection. It, the crucial factor is the papers that he bought. They're at both ends of the supply chain that Collins House uses, particularly Broken Hill, where the mining money is coming from. Mm. Mm. So, you know, all the lines are there. It's quite obvious to me what's going on when I put that picture together, that that's what's going on. And, uh, you know, readers can make up their own minds, but I think the evidence is pretty strong about what that was about. And are you getting a sympathetic ear at uh, News Limited oh. with this story? Um, it's not been as unsympathetic as I thought. I mm. think... A long time think, ago, right? 
You well, know. yeah, it is. It is. You know, it, more recent events will be more jarring when I look at more recent events that are closer to people's lives and with people still alive. Um, but, you know, that yes, it can be dismissed as, oh, that's all back in, in the past. You know, it doesn't matter here. It matters what it's become. Mm. Um, mm. But, you know, I think this is an important factor to know that, um, you know, basically a mining company, um, it was other things as well, but that's where its real money came from and its power started up a newspaper. So, mm. you know. In, in a similar, yeah, no, in a similar vein. I mean, I think you know. I mean, I'd, I'd urge people to buy the book because you know this is one of those things you really need to read. I think to get the detail. It's uh, we could probably need to talk for about two hours to really elaborate on the story. But one of the other stories I wanted to touch on briefly before we uh, had to close was um, the kind of the rel- uh, even though the polit- politicians were you know closely linked to newspapers, a lot of times the politicians blamed newspapers for the downfall. Most famously, uh, Robert Menzies, who blamed the press for his downfall in 1941, especially on the Sydney papers, right? The uh, Sydney Morning Herald and the Telegraph. Why was that? Why did um, why did did they? Or what is your opinion? Did they really get rid of Menzies? Um, it's always, I mean. It's always difficult to say it's only one thing. You know, Menzies did himself in a lot of ways in terms of how he dealt with his own colleagues, for example. You know, if he'd been nicer to his own colleagues, they might have supported him more and not pushed him out as well. But, um, you know, one factor was that they were, you know, in terms of that they were gunning for him, yes, they were. Was that the only factor? No. Mm. But it doesn't it doesn't help a politician to have major newspaper owners ranged against you, and they were. Um, you know, there's there's evidence in the book. You know, documents and letters between them, and, and uh, say between Menzies and Fairfax, Warwick Fairfax, for example, um, them having a feud. Um, yeah, that Keith Murdoch had fallen out with um, Menzies as well. They'd never been particularly. They'd been close at one point, but not very. They always sort of seemed to distrust each other. But yeah, that they, they weren't um, happy with his performance. And I mean, this is what happens. Yeah. I mean, why, why that like resonates? That? Yeah, I mean, why that resonates is, a, is of course, that politicians now, I mean, more recently, in the last in living memory, very much in the last few years, blame media on their downfall. Um, yeah. But it seems to me, reading your book, that the media have more power to actually enact that than they do now. But maybe mm. I'm wrong. What do you think? I think they had more power because power comes with audiences. So once you start losing eyeballs on your on the, what you're writing it can't be as powerful it isn't reaching as many people um and you know that that's part of what's going on now obviously attention's more dispersed it's, um news cycles move faster so stories don't even have as much current or impact as they once did when they were front page that was what you read all morning you know it was had a big impact um so yeah i think less powerful and i think that's why they're probably newspapers in one sense are more dangerous now because I think as that money aspect has declined, the powers it has really come to the fore and we're seeing some organisations, I'm talking about corporation in particular, um, you know, determined to use that power, I think, the remaining power that is left, uh, which is why they've become, you know, the press has become more, things have become more polarised, more campaigning journalism is what they call it when mm. you know, I mean, uh, that. Uh, yeah, I mean, of course they have a right to do so, right? I mean, you don't have to, we don't have to read it for a start, you don't have to buy it. Absolutely, they have a right. Um, yes, newspaper proprietors do have that right. What what concerns me is the hypocrisy of it, that there's this sense of that's what they're doing, and especially that's what, you know, internal documents and behind-the-scenes things, they're doing it. They're campaigning for a purpose, but they say that purpose is in the public interest, and they always use that language of, you know, we're, we're doing this in the public interest. But when you see the private issues involved and what's going on, that's 
not really the case. And that it's the hypocrisy that I'm, you know, concerns me the most. If you just said, I'm earning a paper, I'm doing what I want with it, I'm using it to get this policy enacted because I'll be able to get more business, it's going to be great for me in these various ways, well, fine. That's open, everyone makes the choice. But that's not what's said. It's always, um, you know, couched in this other language. Yeah, and, no, you know, no, that's you know, a very interesting yeah. point. Very interesting point. I, my only solace, uh, you know, as a, as a former editor and journalist, uh, was reading the story of Eric Bohm because um, mm-hmm. um, I kind of fancied his role. So he was a somewhat unorthodox foreign correspondent during the Second War, right? He holed himself up at the Savoy Hotel in London mm-hmm. and picked up gossip from his well-heeled, well-connected clientele, including mm-hmm. revealing Germany's invasion of Russia. Mm-hmm. Because he got to hang out with Lady Oxford, who was hanging out with Churchill himself. So, what a different world, and yet the same, right? Because it's essentially mm. contact journalism. Mm. It sort of yep. ro- romanticizes it, I suppose. Is it? I mean, it's a it's a great little story, anyway. It, it made me feel warm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is a value to just sitting around pubs or bars and, and getting information. Yeah, and he um, used that yeah. um, information to good effect. Yeah. So I just had one final question for you, which was, you know, the, you're doing this new book, so you better tell me about that, actually. So oh. you're, you're bringing, you're going from 1941 up to what, the present day? Yeah, correct, yeah. Wow. And this will, this will take a while. Yeah, I mean, the last book took a, took a while, and this one will take a while. And the, more, the good thing about this is there's a lot of information. That's also a bad thing because it's, um, again, somewhat overwhelming how much information is out there and how much mm. detail you need to tell these stories. Mm. They're big stories. Um, the other thing is that the people I was writing about in the first book are all dead. Yeah. Now I'm writing about living people, and that's just a whole lot of other issues. Yeah, I hope you've got good lawyers. Stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that is an issue. I don't have a lawyer at all. <laughs> well, I, I know a few good lawyers if you need one. <laughs> I might need one. Um, yeah, it, I'll have to. Yeah, I have to take that into account about you know what I can find because with what I could find in the first book was people's papers and letters, and they're they're fantastic. You know. The correspondence between owners or executives and things, their internal documents. Um, there is some of that out there, but I wish there was more. I wish people would keep papers and, and hand them on to historians and people like me who are writing about it, just because I'm sure there's a lot that could be gleaned from that. That people didn't realise the significance of some of these internal documents, for example. Um, but I can interview, which I couldn't do with people who were dead. Right. So, now you got you living, living, breathing people. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, it makes it. Well, it's a massive job. It's a massive job. When do you expect to see, when do you see the end? What, oh, I think it'll take me another couple of years. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Oh, well, you'll be on the show. Hopefully, we'll, I'll still be kicking and you'll still be kicking <laughs> and we can do all the same again in a couple yeah. of years' time. Absolutely. It'd be great. Well, thank you, Sally. Thank you so much for your uh, time. Um, enjoy the Canberra Writers Festival. As I said, I'll see you there soon. Um, and... Um, that's all we have time for uh, this edition of The Fourth Estate. Um, it was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. And make sure you subscribe to The Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk media, politics and many things in between, as we just have with Sally Lung, Young. Uh, we'll be back m- with more very soon, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is Fourth Estate AU. My, uh, many thanks to my producer, Anthony Dockrell. My name is Peter Frey, and thank you so much for listening. 